Book Five, Chapter One, Part Three of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Guero. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume Two, by Henry Charles Lee. Book Five, Resources. Chapter One, Part Three, Confiscation. In the rigor of collection, debtors to the confiscated estates who were unable to pay were imprisoned without mercy. Thus, in 1490, the judge of confiscations at Segovia orders the alguacil to seize the lands and goods and money of Don Mose de Cuellar, who was indebted in the sum of 393,000 maravedis to the late Gonzalo de Cuellar, regidor of Buitrago, burnt for heresy. If he cannot find property enough to satisfy the debt, he is to seize the person of Don Mose and confine him in the public prison of Segovia. It was the same with husbands who were liable for the dowries of their wives, as we have seen in the case of Don Pedro Gascon, page 334. Forbearance, however, was sometimes found to be better policy. In 1509, Sancho Martinez of Egin was sentenced to pay 50,000 maravedis for the dowry of his wife, whose parents had been reconciled. He pleaded poverty to the Suprema, which ordered that, if his property was insufficient, he should not be imprisoned, and that, at the auction of his effects, he should be allowed to purchase to the amount of 10,000 or 12,000 maravedis on a year's credit. The event showed the wisdom of the arrangement. The auction realized 17,000. He was the purchaser, and paid for it at the expiration of the year. He accumulated, as the years went by, 100,000 maravedis, and the judge ordered execution on him for the 33,000 still due on the dowry. Again he appealed to the Suprema, some members of which doubted whether his subsequent acquisitions were liable, and the matter was compromised, July 5, 1519, by ordering him to pay half the deficiency. These instances are not without interest as illustrations of the matter in which this gigantic spoliation was effected through more than a couple of centuries. The elaborate system adopted is revealed to us in the records of the Valencia Court of Confiscations in 1530 and 1531. When an arrest was made with sequestration, the receiver opened an account in his Libro de Manifestaciones, in which the notary of sequestrations entered all the items of the inventory. Then followed the Audiencia de Hacienda and the summons to debtors to declare their obligations which were likewise entered. If the prisoner was engaged in trade, his books were examined and all debts were duly placed in the same record. Information of all kinds was diligently sought, and no matter how vague and worthless, was similarly recorded. Much of this was obtained from prisoners, who testified to gossip heard from cell companions in the dreary hours of prolonged confinement. Thus, July ninth, 1527, Violante Salvador testified that Leonor Bonin told her that Angela Parda, when arrested, 
had entrusted certain small coins to Leonor Mandresa. Angela Parda and Leonor Bonin were both burnt, and Violante Salvador was reconciled. Leonor Mandresa, when summoned to account for the deposit, denied it under oath, and as there was no other witness, the claim for a few pennies was abandoned. The persistence with which these shadowy claims were pursued is illustrated in the case of Rafael Moneada, arrested in 1524. A certain Sor Catalina testified that she had heard say, by someone whose name she could not recall, that Moneada had said that, during the revolt of the Germania, 1520-1522, he had hidden a large amount of goods. His wife, or widow, Violante, when summoned, declared that during the troubles he had hidden some silks in the dye-house. When peace was restored, he had taken them out, and when, two years later, he was arrested, they were among the effects sequestrated. She was brought forward again and again, always adhering to the same story, and it was not until 1531 that she was discharged. This persistence is explained by the fact that the receiver was responsible for every item entered by the notary of sequestrations unless he could show that it was not collectible, to the satisfaction of the judge, who would then relieve him by a sentencia de diligencias, signifying that he had made due exertion. The care thus induced in following up the minutest fragments of property is manifested in a petition presented by the receiver, March 4, 1531, to the effect that he had made every effort to recover fourteen sueldos, the dowry given by Pere Barbera and Graviel Barbera to their sister, Leonor Barbera, on her marriage to Graviel Mas. More than twenty years ago, Pere Barbera was burnt in effigy. Mas went to the Canaries covered with debts and died there poor. Leonor died eighteen years ago leaving her property to Pere's son, Anrich, and he too had been reconciled with confiscation. Anrich was called, and duly interrogated, and then the judge allowed the entry to be cancelled. Besides the excommunication incurred by all who did not voluntarily reveal their indebtedness to a confiscated estate, the receiver was clothed with ample powers enabling him to perform his duties thoroughly. When the first appointments were made for Aragon in 1484, all officials, secular and ecclesiastic, were required to assist him when called upon, under pain of the royal wrath and three thousand gold florins. Apparently this was found insufficient, for the formula in a commission issued, September 5, 1519, to Alonso de Gumiel, receiver of Ciudad Rodrigo, sets forth that, if any one refused or delayed to deliver up confiscated property, the receiver could impose penalties at discretion, and these penalties were confirmed in advance, while every one, of whatever station, was required to obey his orders under the same discretional penalties. It is easy to imagine the wrong and oppression which an unprincipled official could inflict, under powers so vague and arbitrary, and the terror which the office shed around it is exemplified in a Valencia case decided in 1532. September 2, 1528, 
Nofre Catalayut mustered courage to present to the court of confiscations a petition setting forth that, in 1507, as heir to his father, he became liable for a violario, a sort of annuity, of fifty sueldos a year, redeemable at fifteen libras, due to Luis Alcanis, which he paid sometimes to Jaime Alcanis, and sometimes to a daughter of Joan Alcanis. Jaime was condemned, and the receiver seized the violario. Through fear of the consequences, Nofre continued to pay it up to the present time, although it did not belong to Jaime, and the parties on whose lives it was based, Guillem Rancón de Belvis and Johan Boluda, had been dead for twenty years. The case must have been bitterly contested, for it was not until April seventeenth, fifteen thirty two, that a decision was rendered in his favor, to the effect that the violario had not belonged to Jaime Alcanis, and that the lives had ended a quarter of a century before, wherefore the receiver was ordered to refund all the payments that he had received. It was fortunate that a court was sometimes found to check the lawless rapacity of the receivers. It would not be easy to exaggerate the confusion and the hardships caused by the enforcement of confiscation, especially in the early period. The new Christians had filled so many positions of public and private trust, and the trade of Spain was so largely in their hands, that the long procession of arrests accompanied with sequestration and followed by confiscation could not but be paralyzing and affect interests far wider than those of the victims and their kindred even after the first wild torrent of prosecution the industry of the tribunals was constantly involving men hitherto unsuspected bringing ruin or inextricable perplexities on the innocent who had chanced to have dealings with them. The backward search, moreover, into the heresies of those long since dead, vitiated old transactions, and invalidated titles to property that had long been held by innocent owners. During Ferdinand's life we hear of many of these cases brought before him on appeal, and for the most part not in vain, for when the injustice of his receivers was clear, he was prompt to revoke their action, and when there was doubt, he would often kindly waive a portion or the whole of his claim. A few typical instances will illustrate some of the various aspects of the troubles which pervaded the land and crippled the development of Spanish prosperity. Early in 1498, Ferdinand was startled to learn that the Barcelona Tribunal had arrested Jaime de Casafranca, and had sequestrated his property. Casafranca was deputy of the Royal Treasurer General of Catalonia. He had served long and faithfully, without suspicion of his orthodoxy, and possessed the king's fullest confidence. In his hands were the monies of the crown, and also sums sent thither for the repairs of the castles of Rousselon, and the embargo laid on these funds threatened serious complications. Had private interests only been concerned, the embarrassment would have been irremediable. But Ferdinand set aside the established routine by ordering all the sequestrations to be placed in the hands of his advocate fiscal, who was directed to employ the monies as instructions should be sent to him, and to furnish an inventory so that public and private property could be separated. 
than a messenger to Italy had just been dispatched in hot haste with orders to Casafranca to provide immediate passage for him to Genoa, and, as delay would be most injurious, this must be seen to at once. Besides this, there were two chests of silk in the name of Gabriel Sanchez, but belonging to the king, and two chests of paper for the royal secretary, and some horse covers and tools, the property of the treasurer-general, and some books belonging to the heirs of González Ruiz, all of which had to be looked after. Moreover, Ferdinand recommended Casafranca to the kindly consideration of the tribunal, as the accusation might be malicious, and he charged the conscience of the inquisitors to observe justice. Casafranca, however, in the end was convicted, and Ferdinand consoled his children with some fragments of the confiscation. The arbitrary comprehensiveness of inquisitorial procedure and the difficulties thrown in the way of the new Christians are exemplified in the case of Gilabert de Santa Cruz, the younger. When his father, of the same name, was penanced, the son made a compromise with the receiver, under which he received a portion of his father's property in settlement of his mother's dowry and some other claims. Then he married Maria Sieve and pledged this property in the nuptial contract. In 1500 the father was again arrested when the property was at once sequestrated again. He was living with a son, under which pretext all the latter's household effects, even to the clothes and trinkets of the wife, were included in the inventory. Moreover, the son was a member of a firm who employed the father as a factor, on which account all their goods and books were sequestrated, threatening the ruin of their business. In this emergency the only recourse was to Ferdinand, who responded with instructions to the tribunal that his will was that injustice should be done to no one. It was to examine the papers, and at once to act according to the facts, without oppressing or injuring the parties in interest, and without awaiting the result of the father's trial. The insecurity which overshadowed all transactions is illustrated by the case of Diego de Salinas of Avila, who had received as a marriage portion with the daughter of González Gómez, since deceased, a rent of forty-five fanegas of wheat, which the latter, in 1499, had bought, for the purpose from Rodrigo del Barco, for thirty thousand maravedis. In 1501, it was found that Rodrigo had inherited this rent from his grandfather, Pedro Álvarez, whose fame and memory were condemned, and it was legally claimed by the fisc. Luckily for Diego, he had rendered services to the sovereigns, in consideration of which they granted him twenty-five thousand maravedis of the rent. It was to be valued, and he was to pay whatever it was worth, over and above that sum. Ferdinand's kindly interposition was sought by Pascual de Bellido, who had sold to Pedro de Santa Cruz a house for one thousand sueldos, reserving the right of redemption at the same price. Pedro was reconciled with confiscation, and Pascual applied to the receiver to allow him to redeem the house, but, as he had mislaid his carta de gracia, he was denied, and the house was sold for sixteen hundred sueldos. 
In 1502, he found the document and claimed the excess of 600 sueldos, which the receiver refused to pay, until Ferdinand ordered him to do so, because Pascual was poor and had a daughter to marry. It was by no means the conversos only who suffered in this way, for old Christians were constantly finding themselves embarrassed by the cloud thrown on titles. In 1514, Don Pedro Núñez de Guzmán, Clavero, or treasurer of the Order of Calatrava, and major-domo of the Infante Ferdinand, represented to the king that his uncle, Luis Osorio, bishop of Jaén, had a major-domo named Rodríguez Jabalín, who fell in debt to him, and settled with certain properties, renting for forty-five hundred maravedis. The bishop died in 1496, and Guzmán, who inherited the properties, gave them to the dean and chapter of Jaén, to found a perpetual mass for his uncle's soul. The chapter sold them, and in 1514 the Inquisition seized them because Javelin had inherited them from an ancestor whose fame and memory were condemned. Guzmán represented that, if the present possessors were ejected, the chapter would have to make it good. The mass thus would be discontinued, and, at his prayer, Ferdinand ordered the seizure to be withdrawn. As an insurance against such losses, sellers and purchasers sometimes sought to procure, from the king or the tribunals, licenses to convey property, real and personal. This was probably rare, as I have met with but a single case, that of Johann Carriga, whose wife and children, who, in 1510, from Majorca, petitioned Ferdinand for license to sell his property and faculties for others to purchase. Ferdinand referred the matter to the Majorcan inquisitor, saying that he did not know whether the property was in any way liable to the fisc, but if the inquisitor thought the license ought to be granted, he was empowered to issue it with a royal confirmation. If Garriga obtained his license, he probably had to pay roundly for it, for the officials were often by no means nice in the abuse of their unlimited power. In this same year, 1510, Antonio Mingot of Alicante complained to Ferdinand that he had been sentenced to pay 294 libras as a debt due to Gonzalo Ruiz, condemned for heresy. He had appealed to the Inquisitor-General, who referred the matter back to the Inquisitors, but, before they had decided the case, the receiver put up at auction property of his worth more than four thousand ducats, and then, for a payment of one hundred ducats, postponed the sale to St. John's Day. Mingot sought to appeal to the king, but could not get copies of the necessary papers, delays being interposed to carry the matter over the postponement. Ferdinand warmly expressed his displeasure, in a letter of May 21st, ordering copies of all papers to be furnished, and proceedings to be suspended for seventy days thereafter. But the peccant officials were not punished. Old claims, long since satisfied, were constantly turning up and prosecuted, from which the only recourse would seem to be the king. A few months later than the last case, 
he had a petition from the people of the hamlets of Scavieja and La Mata, stating that on November 3rd, 1487, they had paid off a censo of four hundred sueldos to Leonarte Santangel, and now, after nearly a quarter of a century, the receiver demands it of them, on the ground that Santangel at the time was in prison and incapable of receiving the money. Ferdinand ordered the receiver not to trouble them, as they were ignorant peasants, and the payment was made with the assent of their lord, the Bishop of Huesca. Similarly, in 1511, Domingo Just of Saragossa represented that, in 1484, he had given an obligation for three thousand sueldos as security for the issue to him of a bill of exchange on Rome. On his return he had been unable to secure the surrender of the paper, in consequence of the flight of the holder, but it had turned up, and was now demanded of him. Ferdinand ordered him to be relieved on his taking an oath, guaranteed by excommunication. Old and forgotten heresies were exploited with equal rigor. In 1510, Pedro de Espinosa of Baza represented to Ferdinand that when Baza was recovered from the Moors, December 4, 1489, he married Aldonza Rodriguez, niece and adopted daughter of the esquire Lázaro de Avila, and Catalina Jiménez, and, on Lázaro's death, they went to live with Catalina. Now Catalina has been condemned for an act of heresy committed when a child in her father's house, probably a fast or eating unleavened bread, and her property, worth some eighteen thousand ducats, has been confiscated. In view of his services in the war with Granada, Espinosa begged that the confiscation be remitted and Ferdinand liberally assented to the amount of eighteen thousand ducats. With the death of Ferdinand, these frequent appeals to the crown become fewer and are met with less kindliness, though the call for relief from the rigor of the law was undiminished, as will be seen from the case of the monastery of Bonifasa. In 1452, Pedro Roy, priest of Tortosa, sold to Dalvido Tolosa of Salset for 400 libras, a rent of 20 libras per annum secured on certain property. And this property Roy subsequently sold to the monastery. In 1475, Dalvido died, leaving the rent to his son, Luis Tolosa from whom the monastery redeemed it, March 1, 1488. Luis, or his memory, was condemned, and about 1519 the receiver demanded of the monastery the 400 libras and all arrearages of rent, claiming that the redemption had been in fraud of the fisc, as Luis's heresy antedated it. The case was clear, and judgment against the monastery was rendered. June seventh, 1519. Pleading poverty, it applied for relief to Charles V, who instructed the receiver that, if it would pay 100 libras during July, and 50 more within a year, he should release the claim. The avidity of the Inquisition did not diminish with time, nor its disastrous influence on all exposed to its claims. 
in sixteen fifteen a german protestant known as juan cote was condemned by the toledo tribunal to perpetual prison and confiscation he was then twenty-four years old and had been taken in early youth by his uncle juan aventrot to the canaries where the uncle married maria vandala a widow with four children who died in sixteen o nine leaving one-fifth of her estate to cote in sixteen thirteen aventrot sent him to spain with a letter to the duke of lerma which led to the discovery of his heresy proceedings for the confiscation of his share in the widow's estate dragged on interminably september seventh sixteen thirty four the suprema ordered the toledo tribunal to furnish papers in the case including a certificate of the date of cote's heresy which in view of his having been brought up as a protestant it fixed at the age of fourteen when he could be considered responsible in this the inquisition overreached itself for in sixteen thirty five the canary tribunal reported that the heirs alleged cote to have been incapable of inheritance seeing that he was brought up as a protestant and both he and his uncle had pretended to be catholics and they called for a copy of the sentence to demonstrate this the unabashed suprema then shifted its ground and procured september tenth sixteen forty from the toledo tribunal a certificate that cote had commenced his heretical acts in sixteen thirteen when he brought the letter to lerma and delivered it to philip the third in august sixteen fourteen how the affair terminated and how much longer it was protracted we have no means of knowing but the inquisition had at least succeeded in tying up the estate for twenty-five years the hardship of this system on innocent third parties was intensified by the fact that in this as in all else the inquisition claimed and exercised exclusive jurisdiction there was no appeal to a disinterested tribunal but only from the judge of confiscations to the suprema which was as much interested as its subordinates in obtaining as large returns as possible from all sources as these fell off the liberality so often displayed by ferdinand was no longer in place and it became inexorable confiscations were specially assigned to the payment of salaries and the judges were thus directly interested in their productiveness the danger and the humiliation of this were fully recognized in his futile plan of reform in fifteen eighteen charles v proposed to assign to the officials definite salaries and relieve them from dependence on the sentences which they pronounced in fifteen twenty three he received from his privy council a memorial in which among other matters he was urged to see that proper appointments were made in the inquisition and that they had fitting salaries from other sources so that they should live neither by beggary nor on the blood of their victims and that their labors should tend to instruction rather than to destruction and to rendering christianity odious to the infidel the cortes of castile remonstrated repeatedly to the same effect those of fifteen thirty seven complained of the salaries being thus defrayed 
those of 1548, asked Charles to provide fixed salaries so as to put an end to the notorious evil of the judges paying themselves by fining and confiscating, and again, in 1555, they pointed out that, besides the danger of judges deriving their pay from the condemnations which they decree, it diminished the respect due to the holy office. To this the answer was merely that the matter has been considered and will be fittingly decided. Spanish finances, however, were never in a position to assure the Inquisition that if it paid over its receipts to the crown, it would get them back in appropriations for salaries and expenses. As we have seen, it kept them under its own control, and it jealously repelled all intrusion, even by the crown, on its exclusive jurisdiction over confiscations. This position had not been won without a struggle. January twentieth, 1486, Ferdinand empowered the inquisitors of Saragossa to act as judges in the complicated litigation which was growing, and he commissioned them to decide all questions thence arising. On March 31st he reiterated the injunction. If the secular judges were allowed to intervene, everything would be lost. They were to be restrained by censures, as had already been done, and if royal letters or ejecutorias were required, they would be promptly furnished. There evidently was active resistance to this, for on May 5th he wrote that all questions must be settled by ecclesiastical law, for, if the fueros were admitted, he would never get justice. The inquisitors must therefore act, the receiver and fiscal must try the cases before them alone, and they must be speedy. When persecution was active, this threw upon the inquisitors too heavy a burden, and one, moreover, for which they were unprepared, for they were theologians, and not canon lawyers. The assessors, it is true, assisted them, but a special tribunal evidently was a necessity, and this was furnished by the erection of courts of confiscation, presided over by the jueces de los bienes. In Castile, where the fueros were not an impediment, this had already been tried. As early as 1484 there is an allusion to such an official, and a commission as such was issued, April 10, 1485, to the bachiller Juan Antonio Serrano of Cordoba. For some time, however, such appointments continued to be unusual. In 1490, we hear of Juan Pérez de Nieva as juez de los bienes in Segovia, but for the most part the inquisitors and their assessors continued to perform the functions, and, when a juez existed, his position was subordinate, as appears by a letter of Ferdinand, August 27, 1500, to an assessor, telling him that the juez was only to relieve him in ordinary cases, and not to tie his hands in important ones. Inquisitors also continued to act, for in 1509 we hear of Nino de Villalobos as inquisitor and juez in Cartagena, and a certain Dembredo as filling both positions in Seville, while as late as 1514 Toribio de Saldaña is spoken of as inquisitor and juez. 
With the gradual disappearance of the assessors, however, the necessity of a separate functionary became apparent, and the courts of confiscations grew to be an established feature of the tribunals, so long as confiscations continued to be numerous and profitable. Towards the end, when they had become infrequent, the senior inquisitor performed the duties of the juez. Ferdinand, meanwhile, persisted in asserting the exclusive jurisdiction of the Inquisition over all matters connected with confiscation, recognizing that his interests would suffer if the secular courts were allowed to intervene. The establishment of this as a rule of practice is attributable to the year 1508. The receiver of Jaén had sold a confiscated house to Diego García Errico, for forty-two thousand maravedis on a year's credit. When the term expired, Garcia, instead of paying, exhibited a grant made to him of the house by Philip of Austria. After Philip's brief career was over, his acts were not treated with much respect, and the juez de los bienes refused to recognize the grant, on the ground that it was not countersigned by the Suprema, Garcia appealed to the Chancellery of Granada, which ordered the grant to be recognized, but Ferdinand interposed, January 18, 1508, commanding the judges to keep their hands off, and not to interfere with the Inquisition in any way, either in its civil or criminal jurisdiction. The Chancellery did not take this kindly, and invited, in 1510, another rebuke for meddling in suits concerning sequestrations and confiscations. If any cases of the kind were pending, they must be forthwith remitted to the tribunals to which they belonged, and in future nothing of the kind was to be entertained. It was impossible that this monstrous policy of making it the judge in its own cases should be submitted to without resistance, but it was stoutly maintained by the crown the tribunal of jaen invested some of its funds in a censo created by a cleric of alcala he died in fifteen twenty four when his mother and brothers attacked the censo as being secured on a property in which they held undivided interests and another party came forward with an encumbrance on the same property the inquisition seized it and also collected some debts due to the deceased which reduced its claim to seven or eight thousand maravedis. The other parties appealed to the Chancellery of Granada, which entertained the case, but the Inquisition invoked Charles V, who, in letters of May 19 and July 7, 1525, repeated the commands of Ferdinand to abstain from all interference. The Inquisition was the sole judge, and parties thinking themselves aggrieved must appeal to the Suprema. Still, those who smarted under injustice sought relief in the secular courts, which were nothing loath to aid them. Complaints were loud on both sides, and competencias were frequent, until, as we have seen, they led to the settlement of 1553, in which Prince Philip emphatically forbade cognizance of such matters to all courts and ministers of justice, and confined appellate jurisdiction strictly to the Suprema. End of Book 5, Chapter 1, Part 3 Recording by Guero